this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello everyone, my name is Arman Argami and I will be interviewing Dr. John Stulak for this TSRA podcast topic on coronary artery bypass grafting. Dr. Stulak is an Associate Professor of Surgery at the Department of Cardiovascular Surgery at Mayo Clinic and he's the Director of the Advanced Cardiothoracic Fellowship Training. In addition to his specialty training in mechanical support and heart transplantation, he has a special interest in coronary artery bypass grafting and total arterial revascularization. Good morning, Dr. Stulak. Good morning, Dr. Argami. Patients with coronary disease often have uh, multiple other comorbidities and a long history. Can you tell me about your workup and the history that you obtained for these patients? Yes, absolutely. And as you said, uh, these patients uh, tend to have multiple uh, comorbidities, which uh, may impact their risk of surgery and uh, perioperative and postoperative outcomes. As everything, this is a multidisciplinary approach with our cardiology colleagues. Um, it starts with a thorough history and physical exam to delineate those comorbidities. Uh, we do a, a laboratory assessment, basically looking at electrolytes, but also looking at uh, renal function if they're going to undergo surgery. An ECG often has uh, been obtained. Uh, many times patients have had prior myocardial infarctions, which is important to know, or uh, conduction abnormalities uh, such as atrial fibrillation. Um, we start in terms of imaging with a chest x-ray, basically to look at the, uh, at the heart size and lung fields in a gross manner. Um, also, if patients were uh, smokers, we can uh, assess uh, emphyseminous changes in the lungs and also uh, aortic calcification. So a lot of information actually can be gotten from just a standard chest x-ray. Um, after this uh, basic workup, um, and uh, the patient is thought to have coronary artery disease, the cardiologists often obtain uh, coronary angiography. And uh, coronary angiography is very important. Obviously, it's the roadmap. It's the, uh, it's the gold standard and mainstay for delineation. Um, it does have its drawbacks. It is in a two-dimensional um, uh, framework. While different uh, angles uh, can be obtained, it still, again, is only a two-dimensional image. Um, but uh, again, looking at the anatomy, uh, the dominance of the uh, coronary vessels, uh, the size and suitability of the distal targets is very uh, important. So angiography is the mainstay. This will help us identify not only the quality, but the location of where uh, we want to perform our bypasses. And then after that, uh, typical uh, things like echocardiography can be obtained uh, mainly to rule out uh, concomitant asymptomatic structural disease uh, such as moderate aortic valve stenosis um, or uh, mitral valve regurgitation as well as broad uh, assessment of biventricular function. Very important and I believe strongly that a thorough transthoracic echocardiogram should be obtained prior to heading to the operation. Uh, because in about a third of patients, they may either have a large PFO or, or some other concomitant structural abnormalities that you may need to address at the time of coronary bypass grafting. And then in terms of uh, viability studies, uh, that all depends on whether or not <clears throat> the patient has had um, significant myocardial infarction in the past, significant left ventricular dysfunction, and if there's a concern of uh, viability of myocardium. 
Um, and then other adjuncts which uh, are really particular to the history of the patient. For instance, if the patient is a longtime smoker, has a history of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, is perhaps on supplemental oxygen or not, you may want to consider pulmonary function testing. Um, not so much that it would preclude an operation, but it would help in um, anticipating uh, and counseling of the patient in terms of being on the ventilator and our aggressiveness with pulmonary hygiene after surgery. And vein mapping is another uh, issue. I always ask patients if they have uh, had uh, vein stripping in the past or a history of varicose veins uh, or prior coronary bypass grafting. If this is in a redo setting, we uh, definitely want to see what, uh, uh, what conduit is available to us. So, so these are some of, the, uh, some of the adjunct studies that I would get prior to considering surgery. Thank you again, Dr. Sulek. Um, my next question is, uh, when you're seeing a patient in consultation for coronary disease and they bring up the notion of uh, when would you consider surgery versus uh, percutaneous stenting and, and like so, what, what, what do you, how do you explain to the patient and what, what goes through your mind? That's a great question, and there are multiple factors which would lead me uh, toward one or the other. First is the uh, degree of coronary artery disease. If the patient has single or even two-vessel disease and it's a, uh, a mid-vessel disease, uh, not near a branch coronary artery, uh, and, and very technically easy, uh, I think that you don't burn a bridge by uh, pursuing stenting. I think it's undeniable that uh, triple-vessel disease uh, in general is a surgical disease. Uh, I believe that while left main stenting has been uh, embraced more in the current era, uh, I believe that the anatomy of the left main stenosis really needs to be interrogated. For instance, if it was a distal left main uh, and the stent may encroach upon the uh, origin of the left circumflex coronary artery, perhaps that patient is more suited for surgery. So in a broad sense, I would say a 50% left main lesion uh, triple vessel disease, or even single vessel disease with a large amount of myocardium at risk, so a proximal circumflex or a proximal LAD, um, uh, which is basically a left main equivalent, <clears throat> so something very anatomically challenging for PCI. Even single vessel disease, if it is a, a very proximal LAD lesion, high grade, and again, the stent would... Uh, impinge upon the origin of the left circumflex, I believe that surgery could be considered for those patients. So it really is, it really takes into account a lot of anatomic factors. It also takes into account a lot of patient factors. If the patient uh, has had surgery before um, and is very high risk, uh, say from a lung perspective or morbidly obese, where we think that the recovery from surgery would be difficult, I think that stenting could be a lesser invasive option uh, to optimize outcomes. So that's my general approach. Thank you again. That was a great uh, uh, kind of bird's eye view on the indications. Uh, now, my next question is regarding a timing of surgery. Let's say you decided and discussed with the patient and the plan is for surgery. Now, how do you decide on the timing? Like, for example, if the patient has stable angina versus unstable angina, if they've received some sort of uh, antiplatelet treatment uh, recently, how do you, how do you uh, decide on the time of the surgery? Yes, this is certainly an art and not a science, but uh, you highlight a few different uh, manners in which patients will present. Uh, the patient with stable angina who has uh, symptoms upon exertion and then uh, their symptoms subside uh, as they stop their activity, 
that is a patient who's very stable and can be done in a very elective manner. We know that uh, the more elective we can turn any operation into, the, um, uh, the better the outcome. Having said that, we need to balance that with not allowing too much time to go by or else that will then escalate into perhaps your second question, which is unstable angina. That's the patient who had stable angina in the configuration I just explained, but then has noticed an escalation of symptoms to the point where it has either occurred after eating, where there's blood flow steal away to the GI tract from the heart, uh, so sometimes people get uh, uh, angina after eating. They can be woken up in their sleep or early morning when catecholamine uh, levels uh, surge in the body. And so this would be an example of someone who we would want to think of earlier rather than later for surgery. Uh, not necessarily that they're, we're rushing them to the operating room, but it could be someone that we admit to the hospital, place on uh, blood thinners, uh, and uh, plus or minus nitroglycerin, and then uh, perform in an urgent manner. And then the patient uh, you talked about, as you know, the, there's class one uh, guidelines uh, to give um, uh, some kind of uh, antiplatelet or uh, uh, glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitor uh, during uh, angiography in a patient uh, in whom coronary artery disease is suspected. Uh, that presents a, a bit of a challenge for us as a surgeon, and, and certainly um, not that finances need to dictate patient care, but from a from a hospital standpoint, uh, if they receive one of these agents, uh, the guidelines would say to wait five to seven days for Plavix or three to five days for Ticagrelor or one of these other uh, uh, antiplatelet agents. And so uh, from our standpoint, if the patient is stable and uh, has coronary disease, uh, we, we do believe uh, to reduce the risk of postoperative bleeding that we should wait um, some period of time uh, after these agents have been administered. Of course, if the patient condition warrants, we may need to uh, expedite uh, our consideration of surgery. At that point, then we take uh, perioperative uh, precautions in terms of platelet administration, et cetera. So, uh, so really, the stability of the patient will dictate when you can offer surgery. Clearly, the patient who comes in in cardiogenic shock, ongoing uh, myocardial infarction or ischemia, that's a patient who should be considered for emergent operation. So really, the timing of surgery depends on the patient presentation. Thank you. Um, now, in terms of the uh, actual uh, surgical uh, consideration for this patient, traditionally, uh, Lima and two veins have been, uh, as you described in your history of, of coronary bypass grafting, uh, been the the go-to uh, modality for bypassing, but uh, recently uh, the notion of total arterial revascularization has come up, and I know you have special interest in this in this topic. I want you to further uh, uh, explain to us what are your thoughts on this uh, subject. Absolutely happy to, and I think it's an underappreciated uh, notion uh, of multiple arterial revascularization. Um, if we just think about the conduit itself, uh, veins were uh, meant to withstand pressures of the central venous system, and so pressures in the 10 to 15 millimeter mercury range. And so when we subject them to uh, a mean arterial pressure of 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever the, the patient's blood pressure is, um, it was not meant to be like this. So the mode of failure for vein grafts is predictable, and it is uh, that veins dilate, um, you get laminar thrombus, 
and, uh, and subsequent stasis uh, with failure of the veins uh, if there wasn't a technical uh, problem with the veins. So that's the mode of failure. I tend to tell patients, you know, on, the, on median or on average, um, 12 to 15 years for a vein uh, lasting. Now, Having said that, if there are focal lesions of the vein, et cetera, you can even get stenting in the veins. But uh, we, we know that veins have a limited lifespan. So for a young patient, that poses a challenge. And uh, one is your definition of young. So in my practice, anyone under the age of 70 uh, or even uh, under the age of 75, if in very good condition, I consider for multiple arterial revascularization. Um, the use of the bilateral internal mammary arteries and the use of uh, the non-dominant uh, radial artery. We know that the uh, makeup of the arterial wall is very different than the vein, obviously, and so the mode of failure for the artery just simply will not occur uh, in a similar manner uh, than the vein does. Now, when you have your choice of arterial conduits, uh, really you can imagine any kind of different configuration. You can use bilateral internal mammary arteries both in situ if you have only two vessel disease. Um, you can use in situ bilateral mammary arteries with a vein to a non-dominant right coronary artery, let's say. Um, you can use the right internal mammary artery as a free graft and uh, sew it to the side of the left internal mammary artery as a T-composite and then with sequential bypasses perform an all-arterial revascularization. The internal mammary artery is resistant to atherosclerosis and calcification mainly because its endothelium in a selective manner produces nitric oxide. And so that's why at 30 years, 95% uh, or plus uh, of these mammary arteries are still patent. And so this clearly in a patient either with a strong family history or uh, high smoking history or diabetic uh, who's very young. Uh, we can see that these, these types of conduits are favorable over veins. Now, that's not to say that this should be applied to every patient. Um, there are three big considerations I uh, take into account when I think about the use of bilateral internal mammary arteries. They need to be harvested in a skeletonized manner, and so that means um, meticulous uh, clipping and cutting of uh, all of the branches to preserve the blood supply to the sternum. Um, this, of course, has been shown to be very safe, even in insulin-requiring diabetics, in terms of not uh, increasing the risk of sternal wound infection. However, three important things. One is, if the patient has been a heavy smoker and has a COPD with very emphysematous lungs and have a history of coughing, uh, this obviously is going to put a lot of undue stress on the sternum, so that's one. Two is the brittle, poorly controlled insulin-requiring diabetic. Uh, that is a patient that would be at high risk for any kind of wound infection, let alone bilateral internal mammary arteries. And the third is the obese patient. So of these three factors, I, um, while, street, while three strikes you're out is typical, I say two strikes and you're out. So if the patient has two of these factors, I won't consider necessarily a, a bilateral internal mammary artery. In that, in that patient who has two risk factors and is young, in whom we want to do total arterial revascularization, I will consider a radial artery, T-graph off of the left internal mammary artery, so we still can give a total arterial revascularization, but we just will not be using the bilateral total mammary arteries. Thank you, Dr. Stulek. That was a great overview. 
Now, since this technique is evolving, are there any nuances that you can share with us when considering a total arterial revascularization? Yeah, there's, there's several technical uh, factors, and uh, it begins with careful interrogation of the angiogram um, in terms of what your configuration is going to be. I explained several different configurations that are possible. One is I would look at the, de the, the degree of the stenosis. Um, <clears throat> if you were thinking about doing a T-composite and having some sequential anastomoses there and your sequential anastomosis was bypassing a vessel uh, that had a lower-grade stenosis, a 60 or 70% stenosis, you may have competitive flow through that graft. That may compromise your graft uh, proximally, and as such, any bypasses past that area of the sequence um, uh, may be threatened. And so I wouldn't necessarily use a sequential anastomosis uh, for a very low-grade uh, stenosis. Uh, the second is, uh, in that configuration, you may, you may think about using the uh, right internal mammary artery or left internal mammary artery in situ for that uh, patient. There will be less, less chance of an in situ internal mammary artery uh, going down or failing uh, because of competitive flow compared to a sequential anastomosis. So you have to look at the, the degree of the stenosis and where you're planning on putting your sequential anastomoses. That's one. The second is the radial artery. The radial artery is a very uh, predictable vessel. It's typically very good um, uh, quality uh, as compared to the saphenous vein. As we know, they can be thin, they can be small, they can be thickened and scarred. But the radial artery is very predictable. It's very, very good use uh, it's, it's, it's designed very well as a conduit. However, some technical considerations of the radial artery that you need to think about is, one, it's a muscular artery, so it's very prone to spasm. That's one. And so you may think of having the patient on a, a nifedipine or a, a nitroglycerin drip after surgery. Um, the second is that the radial artery, because it's uh, prone to spasm, it's also very um, subject to competitive flow. Because of that, I would not typically use the radial artery for a lesion less than 90%, so a very high-grade lesion. And secondly, um, patency of the, right, uh, of the radial artery has been shown to be much less when used as a conduit to the right coronary artery. I think this mainly has to do because <clears throat> patency of grafts depend on inflow, which is going to be good because you're, you're anastomosing it to the aorta, but it also depends on outflow. And so if you're, giving, if you're, doing, or if you're doing an anastomosis to a small uh, right coronary artery that only has the runoff of a small posterior descending coronary artery, the runoff through this radial artery is not going to be great. As such, I think you'll either have spasm um, and premature closure of the graft. So these are some technical considerations uh, that I think about when looking at the angiogram, and I choose the final uh, configuration of the conduits. Thank you, Dr. Stulak. This was a great educational session. Thank you, Dr. Argami. It's my honor.